0: Acts chapter 11. By the way, happy Mother's Day, ladies. (laughs) Okay, before, I know some of the guys kind of just worked their way in there. That's a very pathetic response to Mother's Day, just being honest about you. Happy Mother's Day, ladies. There you go. That's better. That's awesome. Thanks, moms. Acts chapter 11: We have been weeks now, uh, several months working our way through the true narrative story of Jesus now exploding on the hearts of believers, moving out through the world. And we're in the beginning of how it moves into the Gentile places. But let's rewind just a little bit to get caught up in context. The command that we started this entire story out in chapter one is, is a fairly, fairly clear mandate. Jesus says, "You're going to be my witnesses." Go into the world, here, there, and everywhere, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other parts of the world. Be my witnesses. Um, To us, sitting here in Gilbert 2017, the implications of that command are fairly fairly clear for us, Uh, fairly intentional. We think probably the word missions comes to mind when we think about going everywhere to everyone. That's what we do, and we're kind of uh, on task for that. But to be fair, I think we have a clearer understanding of that mandate looking back 2,000 years than the very people who heard it the first time. Because there were some, I don't know, potential hurdles to getting that message. For instance, I'm just putting myself in that moment. If I'm one of the early church disciples and the risen Lord has just arrived and hung out with us for several, several days, I think I'd be overwhelmed with Jesus. Do you think you would be? Like I'd be enamored with his presence and this reality of resurrection and power and what does it mean to me and us and all that kind of thing. And he could be talking about witnesses to the world, but I'd probably be focused on something completely different. The other thing is too, if they heard about being my witnesses everywhere, my assumption is they interpreted like, oh, we're supposed to go to Jewish people everywhere and tell the Jews that are scattered about you. No problem. We got you. But you also know there was a hurdle for them. Historically and culturally, there was a lens they looked at through the people who were not like them, the Jewish people. They would look down at others and kind of had a word for that. They were those people. Those people, they're beneath us, okay? But as we saw last week in chapter 10, our God is passionate and tenacious about changing not only Peter's mind to see through the eyes of Jesus, but to therefore change our eyes to see through his eyes as well. So in chapter 10, um, God teaches Peter through a series of dreams in triplicate, something totally different than what him and his people had thought for for many years. The idea that I told you that Peter had to come to the conclusion that he wasn't anything special. He wasn't above anybody. And there was no one who was trash, that word common that God taught Peter. There is no one that's trash or polluted. Um, And then ultimately, God extends his favor to anybody who comes by faith, and he proves it by demonstrating this Holy Spirit coming on these people, those people. So, that whole lesson we learned in chapter 10. And I wanted us to kind of really get close to that because I think we have a lot in common with Peter. Um, For instance, we have the same mandate, don't we? Yes, I know it's Mother's Day, but try to stick with me. All right, we have this same mandate. We are called to be his witnesses here, there, and everywhere. That was the call to all of us, not just to them, okay? And the other thing that was, might have been a little intense last week, and someone told me not to apologize, so I won't, but, but there's this reality that exists in our church, not just here, but in the church. Everybody excludes somebody. And everybody has a reason why. And what I ask you to do is simply look to the lens of what Jesus was saying, the Holy Spirit was saying to Peter as a, a lesson to us, and simply ask the question, who is it and why? Some separate, divide themselves from people because of color. It just happens, maybe, maybe not. What's really common in our culture is to separate from people because of fear. They could hurt me. So we separate for those reasons. Religious reasons are a great way to separate from people. Politically, we want to separate. They're poor or they're rich or they're just different. And so we have our reasons and we think they're justified for reasons why we separate. But here's the point. When we started this whole study in Acts, we asked God for one thing. God, make us the exceptional church. If if the Holy Spirit on people, true transformation happens, then make us like you. Make us different than just everything else. And so in the category of being exceptional, as as Jesus would define it, I'm asking us, church, don't waste chapter 10. Don't just be, oh, this makes me uncomfortable. Let's get on to chapter 11. Don't waste it. Because chapter 10 couldn't be more of a strategic strike from the Holy Spirit to us in our day than anything you could ever say. There's so much brokenness and divisions and reasons why we do it that aren't acceptable to God or the kingdom of God or his people. So we simply ask to ask those questions of ourselves this simple statement, who are those people to us? And the response, real simple, repent. Whoever they are, for whatever reasons, If God took Peter through a a college course in figuring out that he isn't special and there isn't anybody beneath him, then he's doing it for us in chapter 10. So who who are the people and uh, and repent of it? And we should have enough motivation because we experience what it's like to be on the outside too, spiritually speaking, don't we? We have a lot in common. This is true. If God looks at us without a covering... We're all outsiders, but here's what Jesus did through the gospel, the wonderful good news, dying for our sins. He brought us in and made us children. So we all know what it's like to be excluded, right? So that's why we care. And the call is clear to us. As messed up as we are, as sinful as we can be, we are to represent Jesus by word and deed. So we have a mandate We are to live up to it. So if chapter 10 represents a change of direction for the church, go to all of the world, to Gentile places, it also represents a change of heart to the church. Go to the world to the excluded people. That's what chapter 10 means, okay? But we are in the end of chapter 11. In fact, the very beginning of chapter 11 is just kind of a rinse and repeat of chapter 10. It's it's Peter telling the story again of what happened uh, with Cornelius. So we're not gonna cover that again. But, But in the end of chapter 11, it kind of ends with with how God grows his kingdom. If God is sending us everywhere to everyone, there are particular mechanisms that God plays in our lives to see that kingdom grow. And so that's simply what I'm gonna pull from these few verses is this, 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 and this. Six points to tell us how God grows his kingdom. You ready? If you like notes, real simple. Here's point number one in verse 19. The kingdom expands through tension. If you see verse 19, it simply starts with this. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution And the text goes on to tell us, went with a message. They went and told people about Jesus. And we're going to see in just a minute what concluded from that message was that many people came to faith. Now, I want to play off of the persecution. You've heard me say this before, but our God wastes nothing and uses everything for our good and his glory. Would you say amen to that? You don't mean it. No, you don't mean it. Listen again very carefully, and before you amen it, make sure you mean it. Our God wastes nothing and uses everything for our good and his glory. Do you believe that? Amen. Okay, get ready, all right? So it is so easy, at least it is for me, to read this particular narrative about this particular group of believers being scattered because of persecution with my 2020 hindsight and my very carefully crafted ESV Bible and go, "Oh, pfft, of course, of course God does good things with scattered people. Of course he does. Look, I'm standing here in Gilbert in 2017 as a recipient of that message being scattered, right? We're all amening this. Who couldn't see the good from suffering like this? But do you think they thought that? Do you think anybody in that early church said, hey, isn't it awesome? They're trying to kill us. And we get to go other places and talk about Jesus. And we lose our homes and our jobs and we lose our retirement accounts. We have to leave. Isn't that wonderful news? I don't think anybody thought that. And here's my point. One of God's sharpest tools to accomplish his will in the world and in our heart is tension. We don't sign up for this. It's not like, uh, God, I'm so prepared to suffer because I so want to be like Jesus. And I'm okay with how we conclude more of the good news as we grow older. But this is sort of how it starts for all of us. We come to Jesus because he is the conclusion to all of our questions. He's the answer to all of our longings, right? But we think this deep and then we get older and we experience more things and there's more suffering and more weight. And we go, wait a minute, I'd, I wasn't necessarily calling for holiness. I didn't want you to totally make me new. I wanted you just to add something to me, make me happy. I didn't want you to go reconstruct me. That wasn't at all what I signed up for, but he's committed to it, okay? He's committed to it. And he still uses it today, this idea of tension. So how do you feel about that? I don't think it's uniquely American or Westernized to not want to suffer. Because I think the people here in the early church didn't like it either. I I bet they could have written letters about, then this is really rough and we're really sad and we grieve it and we shed tears over it. But here's what I do think is particularly Westernized. (laughs) We have way more ways to avoid suffering than they did. We can pay to get out of it can go see a doctor. We, we can do anything to avoid weight and pain. We can shape our rules to... to, to Remove it from our life and run from its influence. But here's what the text tells us. James says it, and you already know this. Chapter 1, this is mind-blowing. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials, suffering, persecution of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops what? Perseverance and maturity and completeness so that you're not lacking anything. Only God can do that take the rough stuff and form us. Please don't forget that our God uses tension not just to move this early church who loved each other to scatter to be his witnesses, but our God uses tension to bring the kingdom to bear in our hearts, not just in places. And the reality of that kingdom transformation is that it teaches us what Jesus loves compared to what I love, those other competing affections. What it teaches us is what really ultimately satisfies. And how do, you, how do you learn what ultimately satisfies that it's only Jesus? How do you learn? By disappointment, don't you? So when the world says, come and get, come and get, and know the joy, and you go and you invest and you buy and you give your life to it, and then it breaks your heart, don't you learn then after suffering that the satisfaction you were looking for isn't in that? It's in Jesus alone. Don't you learn that he is the ultimate destination of your longings from disappointment? You think God is not good using tension to wake us up and clear our minds? Of course he is. And it comes through tears. I wouldn't have picked it. But he did. Don't you understand that the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners of whom I am the worst gets anchored into our soul, in our suffering. And don't you understand that you learn about the who and what of superabounding grace in your weakness. Like, how many of you believe that God is all powerful? Okay, everyone should have raised their hand there. That was the right answer. All right. How many of you really believe it? He can do anything, right? He can handle your sickness, your cancer. You believe it? He can handle your need. He can handle the brokenness of all these relationships that just kind of collide off each other and leave wounded people everywhere. He can fix that. Do you believe that? Okay. In the midst of all those horrible things that every one of us would tap out of, God is showing that he can overcome and superabound, not when everything goes right, but when things don't. Do you understand? God uses tension. That was the first one. Here's the second kind of mechanism God uses to grow his kingdom. The kingdom multiplies through the preaching of the word. Let's pick it up in verse 20 to 21. Now, I'll get back to this, but there's two divisions of people scattered according to the text. 19 says those who went to the Jews and those now who have gone to other places. But here it says in verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. Key phrase and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. I have so far lost count in our study in Acts how many times I've heard that idea, that phrase, and the Lord added, added to their number daily, those being saved, 3,000, 5,000, so many, many. That's the word that the gospel writer or, or Luke puts in there over and over again. So many people are, are coming to Jesus. I've, I've lost count of them, but but here's what God does, okay? But that's... The work of God when the people of God preach Jesus. John calls Jesus the word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. Do you realize how strange the message of Jesus sounded to the people in Antioch? No context. What are you talking about? It's like a foreign language to them but somehow when these men these men of Cyprus and Cyrene showed it up showed up and started sharing the story the those like really warm words melted those hard hearts and they believed according to the text and here's why let me give you a couple aspects of how we go about preaching the Lord Jesus because i really think there was an understanding and a sensitivity first of all in the preacher <laughs> before what was preached was given Isn't that true in your own life? Isn't that true in how we relate to other people? Don't you have to feel and think and be compassionate towards the stories of other people? I know you got an answer. I know the answer is Jesus, but isn't there a journey to the answer? Isn't there supposed to be this understanding? Didn't Jesus sit with sinners and hear their story? Didn't he? Listen, of course he did. To preach Jesus means it affects the preacher. It affects our attitudes and the compassionate way in which we talk about Jesus or the timing in which we talk about Jesus to sit and listen and to feel from their position, their lives, their pain, their fear, their hurt. People are hurting. We need to listen. It is a preacher who's so affected by the gospel that he's willing to talk about the longing of the soul that a soul has spent an entire life pursuing only to find disappointment. Like, I totally get it. I know. I know what it's like to go after it and just be broken. To preach Jesus, to recognize the confusion of all those other stories packed in their brains, these other narratives trying to say it's the truth. And you as the preacher, I understand. I totally understand how that all is bouncing around in your head and there's no clarity. I totally get that. To preach Jesus is to explain the longing of their heart to be connected to the one who made them that they don't have an answer for. They're chasing it, but they don't know. To preach Jesus is to tell the story, the wonderful story of God's love. We have a problem. That is the good news story. It always starts with the problem. The problem is sin. Don't like to talk about sin much, but sin is what keeps us from our creator, keeps us from salvation, keeps us from joy. And Jesus is the provision. Jesus is the answer, yes. Sin is the discussion. We have a want, and Jesus is the supply. We have a confusion on our own, and Jesus is the way. That's what he describes himself as, the one and only way. Preaching Jesus is to tell people God's love is so great that God became a man so that we could understand him and his intentions. Preaching Jesus is to tell people that he came to die as a payment for our sin so that God's holiness could remain. And he is not like us, not at all. And his judgment is perfect. To preach Jesus is to talk about his resurrection, that you can have life in spite of your your sin. So the kingdom of God happens, multiplies, grows when we preach the word. Amen? Let me give you the third thing. The kingdom of God grows using all types of average people. Again, back to verses 20 and 21, a little subtle thought here. It's interesting, the very first phrase of verse 20, but there were some of them. Stop for a second. Now, some of them is the only description we have of those people who went and preached in this place called Antioch to those outsiders. And some of them are the reason why many came to faith. And the only thing you will ever know about these people is they were just called some of them. Average people. Luke tells us that when persecution broke out on the church, there were two types of believers that scattered. The first group, verse 19, only shared the good news with Jews. Verse 20, the second group went to anyone. In fact, the the way Luke divides them, it's clear what he's talking about. Some went to Jews and some went to non-Jews is his point. Hellenist is how it's described here, Greek-speaking, Greek-living, non-Jews. So you can just think about this. The message of chapter 10 is having its influence. These guys aren't looking through the lens of prejudice anymore, and so they're sharing the hope of Christ. The first thing I want you to see is that these people are the very first group mentioned in scriptures that are taking the gospel, the good news, to those people. Really really key, significant moment in history. Somehow what Jesus, what the Spirit of God taught Peter in that wonderful moment somehow has now infiltrated the thoughts of these these common men. We don't know who they are. Some of them is their only description. And they're willingly and joyfully sharing and seeing fruit from talking about Christ to those types of people. But here's the one I want to really hover on that's interesting to me. This is just a group of nobodies. These aren't elders, they're not deacons, they're not apostles, they're not, they're not super Christians, they're not pastors, they're just normal, average, transformed, obedient believers. That's all they are. And that's not to put them down, but to be fair, and this is the point I'm going to make, that's all we are. There isn't such a thing as a super saint, although we have been taught different. They're just normal people willing to take the good news to all the world. And what God does with it is amazing. The text is pretty clear, a great number. In fact, the text says it twice. A great number were added who believed in the Lord. Listen, I just want to emphasize this, church. That is what God uses. You you might be here today and do what a lot of people do and conclude that, yeah, I want to get close enough to the gospel to be saved by the gospel, but I won't believe the gospel enough to be used by God in his kingdom because that takes a special requirement. Like those people serve, those people speak, those people disciple, those people give, those people, those special kinds of people who really take it seriously. That person biblically doesn't exist. God takes the normal broken Wasted lives, and he puts us together under the gospel, and he says, go, go. You might know some names, but I'm telling you, if we got close to their stories, you would find a very shared common story. They're sinners saved by grace, just like you. Average people. Just everyday believers empowered by the Spirit, exploding like a bomb in a dark world, and the light shows up, and people get saved. Just a couple of thoughts here. Like I said, there isn't such a thing as a super saint. And you and I have been called. So do not put up force fields to describe the reasons why it doesn't apply to you. It applies to you. If you're average, anybody average in here? You should raise your hand on that one too. (laughs) Everyone's average. If you trust in Jesus, are you empowered? Of course you are. Then you're called. No excuses. No excuses. Be his mouthpiece in the world. Kingdom of God uses average people because that's all there is in spite of what you've heard. Let me give you another one. The kingdom of God is the work of God's grace alone, verses 22 through 24. Small phrase, but really important to, to recognize here. Now, this report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came, he saw, ready, the grace of of God. He was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith and a great many people were added to the Lord. There's that phrase again. Now to really understand the power and what happened in Antioch I need to tell you about Antioch and then you're going to understand where the grace of God shows up. Antioch was located about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Um, at that time, it was the third largest city in the world behind Rome and Alexandria, so it's just a big cosmopolitan place. It was diverse. It had Greeks and Romans and Jews and Arabs and Persians, just a, just a melting pot of cultures and people. And, and uh, it was known, get this, as Pleasure City, Las Vegas on steroids. What happens in Antioch? Stays in Antioch. Yeah, exactly, but times 10, okay? That's Antioch. In fact, it was famous for the worship of, of Daphne, Uh, Who you worshiped through temple prostitution. In fact, when the world tried to describe the culture in Antioch, it said it was the way of depravity. That's what the world said about Antioch. So, got a picture in your mind of this place? This place is where the gospel broke out. So, if it says anything, I, ju- I just want you to, to get this in your mind. First of all, fascinating that the very first place that the church was sent to those kinds of people was this kind of place. Like, couldn't it have been more safe? Like, couldn't it have been more careful or more aligned with our, our sensitivities and our perspectives? Couldn't we have gone to a place that wasn't so radically sinful? Maybe we could have been just very comfortable. Nope. Go there, go to Vegas. And that's where they were sent. But what does it tell you about God's grace? First of all, it should be obvious. In Antioch, there was no one there who deserved it. I believe that's true everywhere. No one deserves the grace of God. But clearly, in a debauched place like Antioch, God's making a point. Like, Like, really clear. No one deserves my grace. And as we see this evil, wicked place, they didn't. And the second thing, which I really want to stick, is that the grace of God always does, just like here, super abounds over train wreck stories. It has to. We're so diverse, you and I. This room is full of people, but we all have our stories. And we have these things, you know, that make us, shape us. They're the things of our past, the things of our present. They're our narrative, right? And there are probably reasons why you look, you look through, uh, maybe this gospel lends to a little skepticism, from time to time. Maybe when, the, when, when Satan starts kind of doing his sermons, he says, you know, because of that narrative, you, and he starts to label you or try to put distance between you and God's grace because we all have these particular struggles as, as diverse as we are. Now, I don't know, I don't know why you're here this morning. Maybe it's because it's mom's day. Maybe you're a visitor. Maybe this is your first time or you've been here for several months. I need you to listen to me very carefully, okay? You might get the impression looking around this room at all these bright, shiny people (laughs) that there's some form of goodness that you don't have. Church, tell them it's not true. It's not true. If there's a smile, it's only because of Jesus, not us. Nothing we've accomplished, nothing we can do, nothing that we've sorted out or have been consistent enough with. You also might be struggling with the capability of God's love and forgiveness to be able to match up to your size of failure. Like, there's no way! There's no way! You talk about grace that God could reach someone like me! What would you say to the prostitute in Antioch who made her living on the false religion? Would you say the grace of God couldn't reach her? The grace of God can superabound for all who come by faith. The only way anyone ever could relate to God is by his grace alone. The text tells us all have sinned, and the wages of that sin is death. That's the, that is it for everybody, unless God, unless God doesn't make a move, unless God doesn't provide a way, unless God doesn't give what we can't earn, Grace grace is a gift and the gift has a name and his name is Jesus. He came and he gave his life. He died on a cross willingly bearing the punishment for your sin and simply by faith in that you're set free and there aren't charges against you. There's no record of it. You're simply a child of the king from that point on and you would say like all the saints throughout all of history the same thing. God's grace. That's it, nothing else. I have good days, but I have more bad days. God's grace, that's it. Let me give you the fifth thing I want you to notice from this text. Kingdom people get their name from the behavior of its citizens. Verses 25 and 26. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. The name Christian simply means followers of Christ. According to one writer I read this this week, he called it a mongrel name because it's a hybrid between Greek and Latin that formed the word Christian. And more than likely, uh, what has been speculated was that it was sort of a mocking name, sort of a look-down-your-nose name at those people, you know, like I said, everyone, everyone excludes someone, and so now the Christians are being excluded. But, but in a city and a place known for its extreme depravity and sensualities, a city filled with all kinds of bad, God has done something amazing, and he broke out on all these types of people. Non-Jews and Greeks and Romans and rich and poor and big shots and nobodies and prostitutes and everybody in between. And so Paul and Barnabas show up and they start teaching them. And guess what happens? Beyond them declaring Jesus as Lord, they become shaped to look like Jesus as Lord. And so in this teaching, guess what happens? And I can just, just kind of speculate here, but this is what happens with all the brokenness that happens because of sin. And, and Paul and Barnabas start talking about forgiveness and love my assumption is reconciliation starts happening. People who would hate, don't hate. And at one point, they were excluding people. Now they're inviting people in. They're learning to love their neighbors and their enemies. They're walking in joy and peace in spite of suffering, and they look odd to the world. And they're watching these people who are being changed by Jesus, and they're so, so changed that Jesus is so much a part of their lives, their behavior is so like him, there's only one word that works. Christians, that's who they are. You know, from time to time, I I told you I like to play the what if game with the text, so let's do it now. What if. What if the world had to come up with a name to describe your life and behavior? What name would they pick? Oh, there goes the hypocrites. Oh, there goes the worriers. There goes the separatists. There goes the politicians. There, there goes the condemners because they're really good at judging. That's what I heard. Or would they say, like they said to the people of Antioch, I don't know. They seem to act like this guy named Jesus. Would they say that? Because here's what I believe. We get our name from following the ways of Christ. Amen? Christian. One last thing. I want you to see that the kingdom is led by the Spirit of God. Verses 27 to 30. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. According to the scripture, the Spirit of God has many names and many roles. Just to name a few, he is called the Comforter, the Convictor, the Sanctifier, the Teacher, the Regenerator, the Gifter. But here, what's clear is that the Spirit of God is a great leader, he leads us to his will. And what's interesting about this particular narrative, to me anyway, that the Spirit of God not only led them to discernment to understand what would happen, i.e. famines coming, but he also led them to know how to respond to it. Let's take a collection. Let's give our resources to relieve the burden of another group of people. That's how he led them. And it's interesting to me, if you were to go through the work of the Spirit, mentioned in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit, love and kindness are on that list, and that's certainly an expression of rallying funds to meet another need, right? Do you see how fascinating, unusual, and seriously ironic this scene is? I I want you to see this. The change that God's word and God's spirit had on these believers in Antioch, this bad place, was so profound that when famine hit Jerusalem, now remember, the birthplace of Christianity and the place where they were excluding other people, when, when that famine came, it was this church in a pagan town who collected money to relieve the burden. This is powerful. In fact, the very first missionary offering ever taken according to the word of God was sent by folks who just a year before were considered outsiders and beneath them. Can God's spirit change people or what? That should have been an amen right there, by the way. you see his power at work? Can you see where this narrative intersects yours? Can you? Is this just a good story about them? We told you when we started this study, we don't want to do that. I could care less about history necessarily. I care much about what God's spirit does now. I won't be like that. So can you, will you see where these narratives, this work, this kingdom reality, how it intersects your life and your story? It's a wonderful story. That when the church begins to scatter to the ends of the earth, God shows up and says, "Let me talk to you about the kingdom. Let me show you about the kingdom. The kingdom's going to grow. It's going to expand. I'm going to use tension. Kingdom's going to grow, and you're going to go, and it's going to multiply. And you're going to talk and preach Jesus, the Lord of glory. And that's how it's going to happen. Then I'm going to use average people. And there's nobody special. going can be people you never know, never know that intersect this story. And it's through grace alone. Don't ever forget that." And your life will never be the same. It'll change. You become like Jesus, so much so like Jesus that people look at you and come up with names like, oh, they're Christ followers. And don't worry, my spirit's gonna lead you. Church, do we believe this? Amen, let's pray for his help. God in heaven, we ask that you make us like Jesus. God, where we... uh, are fearful of being your hands and feet, I pray, God, you would give us courage and conviction. I pray, God, that we would not use excuses for exclusion and or for neglect ever again. God, lead us by your spirit into the world that many would come to Christ. We pray it in his name, amen.